You're listening to Bill Handel, on demand from KFI AM 640. KFI AM 640, live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. Good morning. It is the Bill Handel Show. Bill is on his summer vacation. I'm Wayne Resnick. The morning crew is here. And let's get right into the insanity that happened over the weekend. Of course, we've been following Russia's invasion of Ukraine for uh, over a year now. But what happened this weekend is not only unprecedented in, in the history of that war or conflict or whatever you want to call it, but is, I think, unprecedented in contemporary times. We have seen coups where uh, a military force overtakes the government and takes over a country. But I don't think we've ever seen an attempted coup like this. Here's here Here are the main players in this story, the president of Russia, Vladimir Putin, the owner of the Wagner Group, which is the private military force of uh, mostly Russian people who act as mercenary soldiers and have been fighting alongside Russia against Ukraine, the owner, Yevgeny Prigozhin. And then kind of as a supporting player in this story, the president of the country of Belarus, Alexander Lukashenko. Here's what's happening. Russian soldiers, Wagner soldiers fighting side by side to take Ukraine. Now, Prigozhin starts talking smack about this war and starts talking smack about Russia's defense minister and that the defense minister should go. And then he turned his soldiers around, left Ukraine, crossed back into Russia and invaded a Russian city, Rostov-on-Don, invaded it and took it over without any resistance, by the way. The people of the city didn't care. The Russian soldiers in the city didn't care. And having done that, he marched his soldiers towards Moscow, saying he was going to take over the government of Russia because he thought the way they were fighting the war in Ukraine was terrible and also that probably they shouldn't even be doing it and that the defense minister of Russia is a big loser and he's got a lot of other beefs. And they get pretty darn close to Moscow. And there was tension because nobody was really sure that this force, this mercenary Wagner force, would actually be able to take over the city of Moscow. And how bloody was it going to be? How many people were going to die? Would Vladimir Putin do something really crazy like drop a tactical nuke on them right outside of Moscow. And then, never mind, Prigozhin announces, we're turning around. We're going back the other way. We are not going to try to take over Moscow. We're not going to try to take over Russia. What happened? Well, one of the prevailing theories is when Vladimir Putin went on TV, as this coup was happening, Putin went on TV and he said, what a bunch of traitors and this is not going to stand and everybody's going to be in unbelievably big trouble, which in Russia means if you're lucky, you spend the rest of your life in a labor camp. That's if you're lucky. 
and that therefore Prigozhin thought better of it finally and decided to call it off. And then they worked out a deal, supposedly, where Prigozhin won't be charged with treason. The soldiers with the Wagner group won't be charged with treason. Prigozhin will go live in Belarus, a country that is super cozy with Russia. It's basically a suburb of Russia. And that's it. And everybody's happy again. Now, I just read something that is a little more specific as to what might have changed Prigozhin's mind. Number one, the Telegraph is reporting that Russian agents threatened to hurt his family. That would definitely get your attention if you're trying to take over Russia when they call and say, we're going to hurt your whole family if you keep doing this. However, wouldn't couldn't you anticipate that that is one of the first things that would happen? It, I mean, Prigozhin is deeply entrenched in Russia. It's not like he's new there and doesn't know how things work. That's kind of really weird. But here's the other detail. Apparently, he didn't have 25,000 mercenary soldiers. They're saying now he only has 8,000. Well, now he doesn't really have any, that he only had about 8,000. So it may be this guy got a little too big for his britches, didn't have the firepower that we thought he did, and then got spooked when they threatened his family and tried to call the whole thing off and probably is going to be walking around Belarus looking over his shoulder every five seconds for a Russian agent to come up with a with a poison-tipped umbrella and poke him with it. So that was really, really, really crazy. There hasn't been anything like that that I can think of um, maybe in my lifetime. One last thing, because I promised I would mention him. While all that was going on, all of that drama – Video of a Ukrainian soldier following the developments came out. And I have uh, put that video, I've retweeted that video at Bill Handel Show. And you can watch the man they're now calling the popcorn soldier. You'll see why they're calling him that. It's quite funny. Forest fires. Floods. Heat waves, droughts, ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles. California has uh, got a lot of damage going on from all of these climate factors. Billions of dollars in damage. People have died. And lawmakers up in Sacramento want to do something about it. And they need money. They need a lot of money. $15 billion is the opening offer, if you will, on a plan to create what they are calling a climate bond in order to try to make the state more resilient to all of these climate risks. Now, they have a lot of public support for the main idea here, which is there's a lot of bad weather uh, events happening because of climate change. A poll from last July found that 72% of registered voters in California believe that we're already experiencing the impact of climate change. 
and and of course everything is political so it's 81 percent of democrats say that and 73 percent of independents say that and 45 percent of republicans say that that's one thing though so you could say well most people in california do believe we have a problem but do we want to pay a bunch of money and that's where a climate bond comes in. You've seen bond initiatives virtually every election. There's a bond initiative or two or 10 on the ballot. School bonds, water bonds, uh, public parks, bonds. Bonds are a way to get things done without raising taxes because bonds are basically uh, like a loan. So a state can issue a bond or a city or a county or the feds issue bonds. Companies, I think, can issue bonds as well, and people buy them, right? So right away, whoever issued the bonds, in this case, it would be California, right away they get a bunch of money when the people buy the bonds. And then those people get their money back plus interest over time. This is a way to get some stuff done without it being a tax, and people are often quite willing to pass bond measures. In fact, if you go back, let's say the last 50 years, go back 60 years, I don't care. You know what? You want to go back 80 years? It's not going to bother me if you want to. You will find most park bonds, most water bonds here in California have passed. Not every single one, but most of them have passed. Here's the thing, though. We seem to have entered, <clears throat> excuse me, a new era. We have entered a new era because we're starting to see voter resistance to these bonds. Uh, back in 2020 in March, there was Proposition 13, not the classic Proposition 13 that keeps your property taxes low, a new Proposition 13. It was a bond measure for uh, schools, preschool and K through 12 and community colleges and state universities, $15 billion bond initiative lost, lost 55 to 45%. There was a water bond uh, a few years ago. I think it was eight or nine billion dollars for a water bond. It also failed. So we are out of the time when we will rubber stamp any kind of a bond. Now, the reason this is even happening is because environmental groups are mad at Governor Newsom. They're mad at him for cutting money out of his own five year climate change plan. I think last year it was like 54, 55 billion dollars. This year it's down to 48 billion dollars because we have a big budget deficit. I know that you know that. And Newsom's trying to close it. So he knocked maybe, maybe, I don't know, six billion dollars off of the five-year climate change plan. And the environmentalists are livid. And they think, well, then we'll go to the people with a bond initiative and we will make up for the money that Newsom is cutting out of these programs. And there is a lot of stuff to be done. I mean, if you just look at the state park system here, it's not just that there's been over $200 million in damage because of those storms that we had, but there's a ton of deferred maintenance, over a billion dollars in deferred maintenance. And I guess if you pass a $15 billion climate bond, some of that can go to shoring that up. But here's the thing. And... You probably already figured this out because luckily you can't hide this fact. 
when you're when you're floating a bond measure, there's something about it you can't hide. What you can't hide is it is a very expensive way to pay for stuff. Now, the Howard, the Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association, they will say, I think it's the most expensive way to pay for stuff. I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm just saying I, I'm not prepared to say it's absolutely always the most expensive. It's definitely always one of the most expensive ways to pay for stuff. Because of all the interest, if you're borrowing, I mean, bond measures, you're borrowing money. That's all it is. Just another loan that you're taking out. So there's interest. And if you've ever had a car loan, if you have a mortgage, if you have carried a balance on your credit cards, you know, over time, you can end up paying twice as much because of the interest. You know, if you buy a $500,000 home at the end of 30 years, depending on the mortgage rate, maybe, you, maybe you're going to end up paying almost a million dollars for that home. So it's absolutely way more expensive than pay as you go, using the resources you have right now and putting them towards whatever you're trying to accomplish as a government. So that, and, and listen, we have this deficit. People are feeling the pain with the inflation with the fact that California on its best day or in its in its best year is a very expensive place to live. And a lot of people know what's up with a bond measure. Some people don't, quite honestly. Some people are dumb and think a bond measure is some kind of weird free way to get better schools or parks or, in this case, fight climate change. But most people do understand what, what the game is. And I think we're, well, it'll be interesting to see if it gets on the ballot. Whether it passes or not, I suspect it might not, because I think people's taste for just spending more money and especially spending more money than is necessary is uh, off. I think their taste is gone for that kind of thing. I want to bring on from ABC News, Lindsay Watts. Lindsay, good morning. Has the announcement been made or are we still expecting it? Wayne, it's going to be coming in just a little over an hour. We're going to be learning more details about this big announcement. Uh, $40 billion for affordable, reliable, high-speed Internet access all across the country. The intention is basically to bring the Internet to every household and small business. And we know from an administration official that every state is guaranteed to get at least $100 million. Some states, though, are going to be getting a lot more just depending on the need. This is the largest ever federal effort to help millions of families and businesses without reliable Internet access. We know during the pandemic, this was something that was really, really highlighted, the digital divide where some areas just don't have good Internet service. And we saw kids and teachers unable to sign on for online school, which was a major, major issue. Now, the money is coming from where? The money is coming from the $1.2 trillion infrastructure law from 2021. Money is actually already being utilized from that bill to help shore up Internet access. Earlier this month, there was an announcement of $930 million in grants that are going out to remote parts of Alaska, rural Texas, dozens of other places where there are significant gaps in connectivity. And, and this project... This is to put in the infrastructure itself, or is there also a component to help people pay 
to have Internet service once it's available? It's not really clear. We should be learning more at this event that's that's happening in a little while. Uh, We know that the Biden administration is going to be joined by state broadband officials as well. It does seem at this point that a lot of this will be up to the states to figure out how the money will be best utilized. Okay, because there's like 7% of this country doesn't have access to any kind of legitimate internet service. And I think we've gotten to the point where internet is just as important as something like electricity. It certainly is. Uh, And and actually, administration officials are comparing this announcement to uh, back in the 30s, FDR had a a program, the Rural Electrification Act, that delivered electricity to farms across the country that were in the dark. And so the goal here is to help transform rural America uh, in this point in time when they are in the dark in a lot of places when it comes to Internet access. I was looking at some numbers uh, from California, and it shows that, you know, not surprisingly, it's low-income people, less educated, Black and Latino people who are are most impacted, specifically in California. 5% of households with school-age kids did not have access to home internet, according to this uh, information. It was from uh, 2020. Uh, so it, it's a very big deal. And we just have to figure out ways to give everybody equal access, especially with working from home becoming so common as well. Yes. Uh, all right. So we will wait for that announcement. But it sounds like you already gave us all the pertinent details, which means it doesn't surprise me, Lindsay, that you have won an Emmy and you have won a Muro. So good on you. Well, thank you, Wayne. I appreciate that. Did not expect to get the, the accolades, but always nice to, uh, you know, get a little uh, nice talk uh, Monday morning as I start my day here. So that's very nice of you. <laughs> All right. It was great talking to you. Really appreciate your help. Thank you. You too, Wayne. All right, Lindsay Watts, ABC News. The formal announcement will come uh, in about an hour or so. But this is one of those things, like with so many things, that we already know what's going to be announced. Now, Internet. You could get on the Internet with just a phone or a tablet, but a lot of people get on the Internet with some kind of a computer, a laptop. And uh, Chromebooks are a kind of laptop. Do you see the segue happening here right now? Southern California school districts are throwing tons of Chromebooks into the garbage because they are now dead. Now, listen, this is a weird thing because, and I'm not bragging that I'm in the Apple ecosystem. I really am not. I don't think I'm cool. It's just the way it happened. So I didn't know this one part about Chromebooks. Chromebooks are uh, Google laptops, they are very light. They are very inexpensive. They are they run their own operating system. They don't run Windows. And they are good for a student in school, particularly in the lower grades. So schools buy these things up by the hundreds. But here's the thing. There's a built-in obsolescence with Chromebooks that has nothing to do with the hardware. It has to do with software support. Chromebooks come with an end of life date, which is the date after which Google will no longer support it in terms of the software. So you have to get rid of it. 
Well, where do those things end up? We don't really know. We would hope they all get recycled somewhere, but we do know this. Uh, this is one form of e-waste. There's all kinds of e-waste uh, every year, electronic devices, etc. We know that uh, human beings generate over 50 million tons of e-waste every year, and only about 17% of it gets recycled. So a lot of this stuff is ending up in landfills and what have you. And that's the environmental side of it. There's an environmental angle on this story, which is, wow, when you make Chromebooks or any other kinds of computers, there are certain metals, precious metals that are used. And those precious metals are mined in countries where they ruin the environment to get these precious metals. And, and there are a group of people who are very concerned because of that angle. But there's another angle that I think is more relatable to everybody, and that is the angle of why are you selling me a product and at some point I'm not going to be able to use it anymore, not because it naturally wears out like tires on your car. Nobody expects tires on their car to last forever because of what they do. In this case, Nothing's wearing out. It's an arbitrary decision by the company to stop supporting it after a certain amount of time. And they know that we know because they did uh, some time ago. It used to be a shorter period of support time and they did extend it. And so now if you buy a Chromebook, it's supposed to have a support time of eight years. And that seems like actually quite a long time. And eight years from now, won't you really want a new Chromebook or some other computer? Except the eight years starts when it's made. So if it's been sitting in a warehouse, sitting on a shelf for a long time, when you buy it, it's going to die sooner. If you're buying it used or refurbished, you might find yourself buying a Chromebook and it's going to expire in less than a year. And that's a thing that does happen. So there's a big push to try to uh, encourage Google to cut it out or to extend the period over which they will support it or to make the period last from when it's purchased or do something about this problem because every year school districts are throwing them away because they can't use them anymore. And that's not cool. It's not cool at all. Controlled burns, prescribed burns, two different things, actually. I don't want to be pedantic about it, but uh, a prescribed burn is you know, when you're going to set a fire on purpose and you've got every single detail pre-planned. What's the point of the burn? Where are the fire breaks going to be? Uh, have we evaluated the fuel that are near the fire breaks for this prescribed burn? What are the weather parameters under which we'll do it or call it off? How much wind speed is too much wind speed? How much uh, relative humidity is too little, et cetera? How much moisture has to be in the soil before we will or won't do it? I mean, they go through every possible variable in a prescribed burn. Now, a controlled burn, controlled fire is just, it's a fire and somebody set it and they set it on purpose 
and their intent was to keep control of it. But it doesn't mean they did any planning at all. So prescribed burns properly done have an, an infinitesimally low rate of getting out of control. I think they call it escaping. Now, regular controlled burns, like a controlled burn would be some guy who's got a farm and he decides he wants to, to burn off some scrub, but he doesn't necessarily know what he's doing. They have a higher rate of getting out of control. And when these things get out of control, they can cause property damage. God forbid, sometimes they can cause injury or death. And then you have big lawsuits. And those lawsuits are one of the reasons that we don't do more prescribed burns in California. Because it's too risky. Even though the, the actual risk is low, if you're the unlucky person who has a prescribed burn that gets out of control, you know, you can be wiped out with liability claims. So what California has done is they've established a claims fund. It's $20 million, which doesn't seem like a ton of money, but it's more than $0. And it would cover damage if... Uh, a prescribed burn or controlled burn escapes. And the idea behind this is quite simply to encourage more of this good fire because more good fire will combat the bad fire, these wildfires, which is the other type of fire is a, a wildfire is usually started by nature, could be started by a person, I guess, but the person who starts it has no intention of keeping it under control or starts it accidentally. And those are the ones that that almost always get out of control. And if you're lucky and it started in the middle of nowhere, then it's just a bunch of stuff is burned, trees and stuff. But if it, if it starts anywhere near civilization, that's when people lose their homes and sometimes their lives. So here's a $20 million fund so that if you engage in this practice and something happens that uh, – you won't be wiped out financially. It's a pilot program. It will expire in 2028. And they can use it basically to get information. They'll be able to get information about how often does a, a, a prescribed burn go bad, how much damage is caused by prescribed burns that go bad, what are the benefits that we're seeing from the prescribed burns that are done, and then they think they can learn enough about how it works, what goes wrong, when it goes wrong, and why it goes wrong, that maybe you won't even need the program anymore. It's, it's a way of encouraging more of these burns so they can learn how to do them without causing any of the problems that necessitated the fund in the first place. That's the idea behind it. And it's not like the state hasn't done anything previously to try to encourage these prescribed burns because just a couple of years ago, they did change the liability standard. If you're doing a prescribed burn and it gets out of control, you will not be billed by the government for fire suppression costs. But that's only one financial risk that you're taking when you do a prescribed burn is you're going to get a big old bill from the fire department or whatever agency, CAL FIRE, whoever it is. 
if you are doing a burn and it gets out of control and it burns down your neighbor's barn, you still can get sued by your neighbor. And they're not trying to prevent people from suing when this happens, which which would be, I mean, if if you want to if you want to encourage more prescribed burns, I suppose you pass a law and says nobody can sue anybody doing a prescribed burn, no matter what happens. If they burn down your whole house and all your kids, it doesn't matter. Under California law, you can't sue them. I guess you'd have plenty of prescribed burns going on all the time because there'd be there'd be zero risk. They're not trying to go quite that far. So that's good. And these, listen, not everybody is convinced that prescribed burns are a good idea. I think that as lay people like me, I'm just some guy who reads about fires in the in the newspaper or hears about it on KFI, and they always talk about, oh, if you do prescribed burns, it can help. And I go, oh, yes, prescribed burns are good. Not necessarily. There's a difference of opinion because it's always weighing risks versus rewards. And it's certainly true that these prescribed burns can get rid of uh, a lot of fuel that later could make for a bigger wildfire if it's not taken care of. Uh, apparently, some of these are random, but one of apparently the benefits of prescribed burns is that it can increase legumes in plant communities. If you do prescribed burns on your land, you can get more legumes. If you like legumes, I guess that's a big plus for you. The cons are the things we can think of. People can get hurt or killed. Property can get destroyed. Even if the fire itself doesn't escape, the smoke can cause problems for people's health, for traffic on roads. Uh, if you've got an airport that's too close to a prescribed burn, that airport might get shut down for a while because of the smoke. So they're trying with a very, very difficult problem. All right, let's get some news from Jason Middleton. And then uh, we're going to talk about why your car insurance is going through the roof and the people who are supposed to protect you from your car insurance going through the roof aren't. This is KFI AM640 live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. You've been listening to The Bill Handel Show. Catch my show Monday through Friday, 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. and anytime on demand on the iHeartRadio app. 